Good morning, friends. Good to see you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word together with you. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us one more time briefly, and then we will dive into the Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's our desire to taste and see today that you are good. And we pray that by your Spirit, you would enable us to do that today. Show kindness to your servants, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. There's lots of talk about the importance of diet and nutrition these days, right? There are proponents of the paleo diet, basically eating only meat, seafood and eggs, fruits and veggies, and lots of healthy fats. Or there's the Mediterranean diet, which is kind of similar, promotes fresh fish and chicken, vegetables, no red meat though, vegetables and healthy fats through things like olive oil. Or there's the keto diet, which eliminates all carbs and encourages large amounts of non-processed proteins and fats. Or the vegan diet, which eliminates basically all animal products. Or the carnivore diet, which says basically the opposite, and eat only animal products, only meat. And surely there are more diets. My, my point isn't to argue for one over another, but rather to point out the obvious assumption that is implicit in all of these diets. What you put in your body matters. What you put in your body can lead to greater or lesser degrees of health and well-being. And our culture's attention to diet and its effects on physical growth start at the very beginning of life, right? After a baby is born, they need to eat on a very specific schedule, And then they are weighed on a very specific schedule to ensure that baby is meeting certain nutritional and growth benchmarks before they are released from the hospital. And the doctors do this because they know that proper nourishment at the beginning of life, right, can help to prevent stunted mental or physical growth later in life, regardless of whether it's a newborn baby or a mature adult, what you put in your body matters. And it matters not just for our physical bodies, but also for our spiritual bodies. If we want to grow spiritually, we need to be taking in the proper spiritual nutrition. What is that proper spiritual nutrition? I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're in our third and final week of looking at chapter 1, verse 22, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. Two weeks ago, we saw that the Word of God is the power of God for salvation. And last week, we saw that those who have been born again into God's family should love one another. And this week, as we focus on verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, Peter tells us what we need to consume to grow in our faith. I want you to go ahead and follow along with me as I read chapter one, verse 22, all the way through chapter two, verse three. This is God's word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, 
and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you're taking notes this morning, the main point of our message today is that we should crave God's word because it's how we grow and how we know that God is good. We should crave God's word because it's how we grow and how we know that God is good. We're gonna break that main point into three smaller points to help you follow along and track with me throughout our message today. So point one, we should crave God's word. Point two, because it's how we grow. Point three, because it's how we know that God is good. So first, we should crave God's word. Look again with me at chapter two, verse two. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Before we start to unpack Peter's instruction, I wanna briefly remind you of the context of this instruction. The whole first half of chapter one is all about how God has gloriously and unilaterally saved us, right? He chose us, set us apart by his spirit, cleansed us by the blood of Jesus, caused us to be born again, gave us a living hope. And then we saw in verses 22 to 25 that he did all of that through his word. And now in light of what God has already done through his word, we should long for, crave for, even more of his word, right? The, the call to crave for God's word here isn't a legalistic instruction about reading the Bible more so that God will be pleased with you, right? It's about wanting to know more of the power and goodness and trustworthiness of the God who has already saved you through his word. If we have been born again, we should crave more of God's word. Look again at verse two. Peter says, long for the pure spiritual milk. To long re refers to intense yearning or craving. And we're to crave pure spiritual milk. I'm just gonna do a really small amount of Greek here. The word that Peter uses for spiritual milk is logikos, which comes from the Greek word logos, which means word or scripture. In the context of verses 22 to 25, Peter is referring to the good news of the gospel about the salvation from sin that Jesus came to bring that is proclaimed in both the Old and New Testament. And that's what he's talking about here as well. We are to crave more of the word of God. We should want to consume more of it, internalize more of it, and understand more of it. And I want you to notice how intensely we should crave it. Look again at verse two. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. In the same way that newborn infants crave their mother's milk, 
we should crave God's word. All right, Peter doesn't mean that we should scream and cry for the word like a baby cries when it's hungry, right? But he does mean that the intense yearning that infants have for their mother's milk should absolutely be our attitude toward God's word. There should be a hunger in our spiritual bellies for more of God's word because it's through God's word that we come to know God himself. I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but I hate being on the phone. Like my goal for phone conversations, just FYI, if you call me, my goal for phone conversations is to keep them to like 60 seconds or less, right? There's really very few reasons in my life that I I understand that I need to have a call longer than that. I see Leah walking around the house on the phone, right? She's on calls with family and friends for 10, 20, 30 40 minutes, and I'm like, how are you doing that? I can't, I can't come around. How could you possibly have enough to say to a person to stay on the phone for that long? What could possibly keep your attention for that long? That has always been my attitude towards phone calls, except, except for the period of time after Leah and I started dating. <laughs> I wanted to talk to her every minute of the day. Like, legit, I did. We talked on the phone for hours. I'd be on the phone for hours, like, One hour passes, two hour passes, I will talk to you all day on this phone if I have to, right? I wanted to talk to her more and more. Getting to know her propelled a greater craving, a greater longing to get to know her even more. Friends, that's the the attitude that Peter is instructing us towards here, right? Having come to know the power of God, having come to know the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the sovereignty of God, the salvation of God in and through his son, Jesus Christ, how could we not want to come to know God even more? The God of our salvation. And I want you to notice that this should be our attitude as Christians at every point of the Christian life. When Peter says, like newborn infants, He isn't saying, hey, to those of you who are new Christians among the audience I'm speaking to, he's saying, to all of you, be like newborn infants. He isn't just speaking to new Christians. His audience would have been made up of people who were newer Christians and who have been following Jesus for a long time at that point. He's saying, all of you, no matter how long you've been a Christian, all of you should long for and crave for more of God's word. All Christians regardless of their level of maturity or the number of years they've been following Jesus, all Christians should crave the pure spiritual milk of the good news of redemption that is found on all pages of Scripture. I want you to hear this. We're going to talk more about why we should crave God's word in the next two points. And especially when we get to point three, I hope you get a taste of the goodness of God that that leads to craving more of that goodness in his word. But I want to at least ask the question now, would you say, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you say that you crave and long for God's word? Would you say that you long for it like a newborn infant longs for milk? If your answer is yes, praise God. My encouragement to you is to keep 
feeding that fire with more of God's word. I recall being a, a, a newer Christian uh, back after God saved me, and there was a period of time where I was reading the word voraciously, and then I was super discouraged to find in conversation, I'd have conversation with some people who had been Christians for years at that point, who would say things like, oh, that's so great that you're reading so much. Read as much as you can because that feeling's gonna wear off. And I'm like, was that even an encouragement? Like, what, what are you telling me here? Like, is my appetite for God's word supposed to diminish? Like, is that normal in the Christian life that we should dull in our affections for the Lord? What, what kind of instruction is that for me, right? If you're in a season of craving God's word, I wanna say to you, praise God. Keep praying for more of it. Keep craving more of it. Don't stop. Keep feasting on the word. Keep moving out into the deeper waters of God's word and know that you will never exhaust nor even come close to exploring all the treasures that God has for his people in his word. But what if you're not craving God's word? What if you're not longing for it like a newborn infant? I'm gonna go out on what I think is probably a pretty sturdy limb here and say I assume that is most of us here this morning. What can you do to cultivate the type of longing Peter is describing here? I wanna give you three things to think about. None of them are surprising. You could probably guess all three of them, but each one of them is crucial in cultivating a longing for God's word. The first thing I want you to do if you are not sensing or experiencing that longing is to pray. Pray. So basic, right? Welcome to church. This is the amazing instruction in your Pray and ask God for more of that longing. Augustine famously wrote in his confessions as he was speaking to God, he said, command what you will. God's command is for you to long for his word like a newborn infant. Command what you will and give what you command. We start by praying that God would give us the very thing he commands of us. And here's good news for you. If you commit to praying for this longing, God says, if you ask anything according to my will, I will hear you and you will have what you ask for. Guess what God's will is for you? That you would long for pure spiritual milk that you would crave for it so we can ask him lord cause me to long for your word lord help me to develop an appetite for your word like like a newborn infant longs for milk lord i want to long for your word in the same way please cultivate that in me start by praying and praying persistently don't just pray it once and then move on pray it over and over again think of the parable of the persistent widow right she went to the, the, the judge and asked day after day some prayers God intends for us to ask for over and over again before he gives us what we're asking for. Second, second thing I want you to do is consider reducing the amount of spiritual junk food you're taking in. What is that spiritual junk food? Well, it's different for everybody, right? For some, it's social media. For others, it's streaming movies and TV. For others, it's video games. For some, it's watching YouTube or doom-scrolling news websites, right? Now, listen, I, I want to qualify this by saying I, I understand that we live in a period of time where so much of life 
is necessarily connected to our devices. Smartphones and computers and connectedness, they are a part of life. I work on a computer most of the day, right? Some of you use social media for your work, and it's not wrong to watch TV shows or movies or even play video games from time to time. But I would be committing pastoral malpractice to not point out the way that this device is keeping you from craving God's word. I don't know about you, this device changes my spiritual appetite almost every day. I'm sure many of the parents in the room have experienced this, but more often than I care to admit, our our kids come to the dinner table at night when we sit around the table and they complain that they're not hungry at dinner time. You know why? Because they've been snacking all day long. We made the mistake of allowing them to eat snacks during the day. Yes, you can have chips, you can have some mango, you can have some fruit, and then they get to the dinner table. I'm like, I'm not hungry. We're so surprised you're not hungry. You've been snacking all day long, right? In the same way, our phones and social media and TV and movies and video games and the digital world in general in which we live act as snacks that steal our appetite for God's word. Honestly, a better metaphor for the digital world would be a drug rather than a snack. So much of the digital world is engineered to keep us locked onto it. Media companies engineer their platforms to keep us on their sites. And studies, as far as I understand it, are conclusive that their effects on the wiring of our brains that are taking place because of the constant release of dopamine that takes place when we're enmeshed in a digital world. That constant release of dopamine makes it harder for us to concentrate on things that really matter, like hearing from God in his word. And that makes it so much harder to want to turn to God's word when you're carrying around in your pocket such a visually stimulating spectacle that you can access and enjoy at any point during the day. Again, smartphones aren't going anywhere. Computers aren't going anywhere. So we just need to be wise and informed about their effects on our physical state and wise about how we use them. For instance, if you find yourself hopping on your phone first thing in the morning, and then because of hopping on your phone, you get into email or social media, and then you end up not getting into God's word as you intended to do, right? If that's a pattern in your life, consider not getting on your phone first thing in the morning. I remember a number of years ago, I think it was like five to seven years ago, they, somebody put together this little trick where they took like the greatest violinist in the world and they just dressed him up in normal clothing and put him in a New York City subway and he was just standing there playing the violin. They had a video recording all of it. Do you know what happened? Most people just walk right on by, walk right on by, walk right on by. Very few people stopped and were like, oh my gosh, this guy is amazing. Most people were just transfixed by what they had to do throughout their day that they weren't paying attention to the glorious music that was being played for them right there. When we, when we go to our phones or to our computers or to kind of the digital world first thing in the morning and we walk by God's word, that's kind of like what we're doing. We're going for something that is gonna give us far less than if we would stop and listen to the beautiful music that God has prepared for us in his word. God wants to speak to us and meet us in his word and allow us day in and day out to taste and see that he is good. So I wanna encourage you with this second point of reducing spiritual junk food to take the next few weeks, track how much time you spent on screens outside of what you need to use them for, for work and things like that, and then compare how much time you spent within that 
with how much time you spent in God's word? What does that balance look like? Maybe it's a fine balance, and that's great. Maybe you'll find that. Maybe you'll find, whoa, it's way out of whack, and I, I need to make some course corrections here, right? And if you do that, you may find a fairly obvious reason why you don't have as much of an appetite for God's word like Peter is calling us to. And then just come up with a plan for rebalancing that intake. A.W. Tozer said, whatever keeps me from my Bible is my enemy, however harmless it may be. The digital world may seem harmless, but it keeps you from the word. It is your enemy. Third, don't just cut out bad food. Replace it with good food. Start spending time in the word. When I've gone through stretches of not being in the word as much as I ought, I I find that after I get back into it, I'm just so much more refreshed. Like, ah, wow, God really does help me in his word. God really does nourish my He does what he says he's gonna do, right? God's word is gonna accomplish the purposes for which he sent it. He sent his word in part to help sanctify you as a Christian. And you will experience that over time as you turn to God in his word. Now, I wanna wanna just caution some of you here. Some of you may have the desire to jump in full-fledged right into the deep end and commit to some unsustainable reading plan. My encouragement would be to start small. Prayerfully read through a book, a chapter a day. Almost every chapter in the Bible, except for like Psalm 119, takes like five minutes to read. Just read for five minutes, pray about what you've read, or simply set a clock and read as much as you can in the allotted time. Start feeding on God's word. It may taste like broccoli at first, but if you've been eating lots of spiritual junk food that's normal before long, it'll start tasting like ribeye. Or I have vegan friends here, the best tofu burger you've ever had, right? Your spiritual taste buds, like your normal taste buds, take time to adapt. But the cravings for God's word will come back the more you taste of God's goodness. And we should all crave the word like infants because it's how we grow in the faith. That brings us to point two. We should crave God's word because it's how we grow. Look at verse two. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The regular consumption of the pure spiritual milk of God's word is what God uses to grow us in the faith. And notice the assumption that is built into what Peter says. Peter assumes that all Christians will grow and mature. While you and I should always long for God's word like infants, we shouldn't remain infants in regards to the faith. If we're not growing spiritually, it's an indication that something is off in our spiritual lives. So in Sierra, Brazil, there's a 42-year-old woman named Maria Odete who has received attention from various news outlets because even though she's 42 years old, Maria is physically indistinguishable from a toddler. The doctors have never been able to pin down why she hasn't grown, but she looks just like an 18-month-old, and she is 42. And all tests seem to indicate that she's still aging in the way that humans age. She's just not growing physically. I don't don't bring up her situation to make light of it. I can't imagine how hard the inexplicability of her condition is on her family. I bring it up simply to highlight that when a human doesn't grow, it tells us something isn't working properly. In the same way, friends, 
if we aren't growing spiritually, it's an indication something is off. One of the most obvious causes of not growing spiritually or of maybe experiencing a season of growth but then eventually veering off course spiritually is failing to take in the nourishment we need to grow in the faith. And that nourishment at every stage of the Christian life comes through God's word. When we regularly consume the word, we are regularly drinking deeply of the spiritual truths that give life to our souls. In the word, we encounter the God who has the power to create by his word. The God who is enthroned above the highest heavens. The God who dwells in unapproachable light. The God who does all that he pleases. The the God whose will cannot be thwarted. The God who keeps every single one of his promises to his people. We meet the God who delivers his people from powerful earthly kings who parts seas so his people can walk through on dry land, who leads his people in the wilderness, who gives his law and commands to his people, who pursues his people when they're wandering from his ways and promises to rescue them even when they've sinned. We meet the God who so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son, the God who took on flesh, fulfilled the law on our behalf, died the death that we deserve, rose again from the dead, and is coming to judge the living and the dead. We meet the God who has removed our condemnation, opened our eyes to his glory, filled us with his spirit, and has guaranteed an imperishable inheritance for us. Friends, these truths and so many more are the treasures that God has stored up for us in his word. And by these truths and treasures, he intends for us to grow up in the faith as we await the day when he returns to take us to be with him where he is. Now, let me be clear. I am not encouraging reading the word for reading the word's sake. Like, I'm just gonna go ahead and read the word so I can check it off my list and get on with my day. I am talking about meeting with the Lord in his word. The late James Boyce was known for often reminding his congregation that the word of God, as important as it is, is nothing without the God whose word it is. We crave the pure spiritual milk of the word Because in the word, we meet the God of the word. We encounter him in all his holiness, in all his power. And as we encounter him and hear him speak, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. The pure spiritual milk of God's word, of taking in the the grand and sweeping story of redemption, of encountering God's presence and seeing how he has fulfilled all his promises in and through his son, Jesus Christ, nourishes us so that we grow in faith and hope and love. So maybe you're hearing this and thinking, yes, John, I wanna dive into God's word and be nourished by it, but but where do I start? How How do I tackle it? It's so big, there's so many books. Some of it is confusing. If that's you, I wanna encourage you to think of different approaches to reading scripture. Martin Luther has a great quote that sums up these different approaches well. He said, I study my Bible like I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest may fall. Then I shake each limb. And when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. Then I look under every leaf. I search the Bible as a whole like shaking the whole tree. 
Then I shake every limb, study book after book. Then I shake every branch, giving attention to the chapters. Then I shake every twig or a careful study of the paragraphs and sentences and words and their meanings. Friend, if if you're wondering, how do I tackle this thing? Spend a year shaking the whole tree. Just try to read as much of the Bible as you can in a year. Try to read the whole Bible if you can in a year. Then spend the next year shaking the limbs. Go slowly through specific books of the Bible. Then take the next year to shake the twigs and and branches, right? Marinate in one or two books of the Bible for the whole year. Whatever you do, my encouragement is to have a plan and then stick with that plan. One of the mistakes I made early in life when it came to uh, fitness and working out was that I was a classic program hopper. I wouldn't see results as fast as I wanted and thought the problem was the program, But then what I learned over years and many years is that 95% of results in fitness and exercise and things like that have less to do with the program and more to do with consistency, right? Just show up, follow whatever program you are, just show up and do that program and you will experience results. Whatever plan you pick, stick with it. The Bible is so big that you are gonna be tempted to jump around or feel like you're missing out on other good stuff, but trust that as you give yourself to prayerfully and consistently taking in the pure spiritual nourishment of God's word, God will give the growth. But you also need to realize that growth will be slow and mostly imperceptible. Just like with humans, right, the changes that occur daily are imperceptible, but over the course of years, the changes are, oh, oh yeah, they have changed, they have grown. Not only will it be slow, but it'll look different in different stages of the Christian life. Maybe you're in the early years of your faith. If so, you may see much more obvious changes, right? Just like with kids, bigger changes take place over a shorter period of time. But then as a person grows into the teen years and then early adulthood and adulthood, the nature of growth changes and becomes a bit more subtle in much the same way. If you've been walking with Jesus for some time, you're not gonna be experiencing the type of changes that someone who has just come to the faith might experience. The growth in knowing God and experiencing him occurs in more subtle and nuanced ways. If you're married, then you probably know what I mean here, right? You may have grown a ton in getting to know your spouse when you first started dating. Your relationship growth was more dramatic and obvious. But now in marriage, your knowledge of person, your knowledge of, uh, of uh, the growing knowledge of the person doesn't stop. You simply begin to experience them and learn about aspects of their personality in ways that you never saw before, right? Hidden dimensions of their personality are revealed over time. And those experiences, while less dramatic than before, are no less profound and continue adding depth and richness to your relationship. It's the same way with the Lord. As we prayerfully and consistently take in the pure spiritual milk of God's word, God will slowly reveal more of the hidden dimensions of his nature and purposes to us. And through it, we should see both the growth in knowing God and his word and a transforming of our character to become more and more like Christ. And that transformation happens because when we take in the spiritual milk of God's word, the spirit enables us to taste of his goodness. And that brings us to our third and final point. We should crave God's word because it's how we know that God is good. Look again with me at verses two and three. 
like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When Peter says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, he's, he's not calling into question whether they're Christians or not, but giving them an opportunity to reflect on what they've experienced from God and how that should motivate their pursuit of him. If you've tasted God's goodness, then you should long for more and more of it in his word because it's through his word they tasted his goodness. Remember the context. It was through the living and abiding word of God that they were born again. It was through the word they heard the good news of the gospel of God's plan of redemption fulfilled in his son, King Jesus, dying for our sins and rising again from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying the goodness of God that you tasted in salvation through his word is continually there for you in God's word. Through his word, we come to know more of his goodness, more of his power, more of his trustworthiness, more of his righteousness and justice and mercy and grace. What Peter says here is even a beautiful example of this. I want you to notice again what he says. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that image of tasting that God is good, Peter didn't come up with that on his own, did he? Where did that come from? Where does that image come from? We read it in our service earlier. It came from Psalm 34. Peter grabs the language of Psalm 34, but you know what? When you turn to Psalm 34, you realize, whoa, this isn't the only part of Psalm 34 that shows up in 1 Peter. In fact, one could make the argument that 1 Peter is an exposition of Psalm 34 as a whole. I want you to see this for yourself, so I want you to go ahead and take your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 34. When you get there, you'll see that Psalm 34 was written by King David. That's significant because the Davidic Psalms are ultimately fulfilled in a greater David, a greater king. And we'll see that it was written by King David after he experienced a great deliverance. We're going to move quickly through this so that I can make the connections to 1 Peter. Just track with me as, as we read through the psalm. Notice verses one to three. David begins with praising God. I will bless the Lord at all time. His, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Why, David? Verse four. Because God delivered him from all his fears. Verse six. God saved him from his troubles. Verse seven. God protects him and encamps around him and his people and delivers them. And because of God's power to deliver and save his people, David calls everyone else in verse eight to taste and see that God is good. His goodness being ultimately expressed in his deliverance of his people. Not only does he deliver his people, verse nine and 10, he provides for his people when they seek him. What does it look like to seek him? Verses 11 to 14, fear the Lord. 
turn away from evil and pursue good, knowing, verses 15 to 18, the Lord is on the side of those who seek his ways and opposed to all who oppose him and all who oppose his people. And listen, verses 19 to 22, if you belong to the Lord, you will experience many afflictions, but God guarantees that he will deliver you. The Lord will redeem all his people. None of us who have trusted in him will be condemned or put to shame. First Peter, anyone? Let's go back to the top of Psalm 34. Look, look back again to the top with me. How does David begin? By praising God for deliver him, delivering him and saving him. How does First Peter begin? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, Peter? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has delivered us and saved us. Not only has God delivered us and saved us, central to Psalm 34 is the reality that God's people will suffer many afflictions and central to those afflictions will be opposition and persecution from others, which is the central theme of all of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, many afflictions, trials that we'll find out in chapters two to four center on persecution and opposition from other people for our faith. But in the face of these afflictions, we don't need to worry in Psalm, because in Psalm 34, we see that the angel of the Lord encamps around God's people. He is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, the Lord will deliver us from all our troubles. None of us who have taken refuge in him will be condemned. What does Peter say throughout chapter one and throughout his letter? We are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. God guarantees that he will protect and deliver us. And because of that, Psalm 34, verse 9, fear the Lord, O you, his saints. Verses 11 to 14, fearing the Lord looks like keeping your tongue from evil and lips from speaking to see, turning away from evil and doing good. What has Peter already told us to do in chapter 1, verse 17? Fear the Lord, O you, his saints. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander. In fact, he's going to go on in chapter 3 to quote verses 12 to 14 of Psalm 34. See how many of these themes in Psalm 34 are unpacked in 1 Peter. Praising God for his great salvation. Trusting God in the midst of many afflictions. Knowing that God will guard us through all of them and ultimately deliver us from all our troubles. And because of that, fearing the Lord, seeking the Lord, and turning away from evil and pursuing good. Tasting and seeing that God is good. But ultimately, we taste and see that God is good, not in how Psalm 34 speaks to us, but in how Psalm 34 speaks about Jesus. He is the true king the greater David who calls us to praise God for his great salvation. Jesus is the true king who sought the Lord in verses four to six. Jesus is the one whom the Lord answered and delivered from all his troubles. The one who calls all of us to taste and see that God is good because he 
more than anyone else that has ever lived, knows that those who take refuge in the Lord are truly blessed. He is the one that understood that those who pursue the Lord will lack nothing. The one in verses 11 to 14 is qualified to teach us the fear of the Lord and to instruct us on how to live in the midst of many afflictions and opposition and persecution. He is the one who was truly brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, yet who ultimately experienced salvation from God. Look again at verse 19. Many are the, are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Out of them all. Even death itself. Jesus experienced this deliverance from death firsthand. We know this from his crucifixion. Look at verse 20 of Psalm 34. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. What a weird thing for David to say in Psalm 34. But David, speaking by the Spirit, was speaking of a greater king, King Jesus, who experienced this salvation on the cross because he is the true Lamb of God. 1 Peter 1.19, the Passover Lamb whose bones were not to be broken on the cross and whose precious blood has ransomed us from all sin. And because of that, Psalm 34, verse 22, none of us who take refuge in him will ever be condemned. You know what? why they record that in the Gospels? That when the Roman centurion came to Jesus on the cross, he did not break all of his bones because he saw that Jesus was already dead. The Roman practice was to break the bones of people who were being put to death by crucifixion so that they would, they would die speedily. You break their leg bones, they collapse, they suffocate, they die. It's a terrible way to die. The Roman centurion came to Jesus, saw he was dead, didn't break his bones, fulfilling the Passover lamb whose bones are not to be broken, the king from Psalm 34 who experienced great salvation, not one of his bones were broken, and all who trust in him will not be condemned. That is the, the goodness that God has for us in his word. Do you feel yourself spiritually nourished when you hear about Jesus? You can tell me, do you? I mean, when you read about Christ in his word in the Old and New Testaments, do you hear God speaking to you through his word and encouraging you in the faith? That is the goodness of God. Taste and see that God is good. That's why when Peter says, long for the pure spiritual milk, he's not saying, hey, do this so that God can be pleased. He's saying, God is pleased with you. He's already saved you and redeemed you through Jesus Christ, the one who is the fulfillment of all of Scripture. Now come and get more of that goodness from his word. The Psalms. This is just one. This Psalm 34. This is one of 150 Psalms that all point to him, that all teach us about him. And the Psalms are one of 66 books. There is so much goodness, so much nourishment. So the banquet table, you look down it, left to right, it never ends. The, the, the delights that God has for us in his word are never ending. And they are all, they're all there, all there to nourish you in the faith. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. We long for the word 
Because in the word, we meet the God of the word, the God of our salvation, the God whose goodness is sweeter than honey. And that sweetness is for everyone here today. If you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, we would love to talk to you about what it would look like to put your trust in him. And to those who have trusted, be like newborn infants. God has treasures of goodness and wisdom in store for you here. I know that's hard. I know that some of you feel like Sisyphus, like pushing the same boulder up the hill over and over again. But I want you to know that as you take in God's word, God is doing something more glorious than you could imagine. He is making you more like Christ. I'm gonna close our time with a quote from Don Whitney that I think captures the message of this sermon and these verses well. Here's what he says. Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It is not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The apostle Peter said that there were some things that were hard to understand in his second letter when he was talking about Paul's writings. I am glad he wrote those words because I have felt that often too. So do not expect to always get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may experience that, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Still, let the word break over your heart and over your mind again and again as the years go by, and imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct you will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer and then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh, that same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Long for that spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And when that salvation comes, you will taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, we pray that you would create an appetite in us for your word. Not for just the duty of reading it, but the delight of meeting you in it. That as we give ourselves to tasting of your word and of your goodness and of the fulfillment of your glorious plan of redemption in Jesus Christ, we pray that you would grow us up in salvation. We pray that you would prepare us to meet the bridegroom who is coming again. We ask, Father, that today and all the days ahead, you would enable us to taste and see that you are good. And we pray for the day when we will see you in the flesh. We ask, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.